steal your music stand? Okay, sorry. Thank you. All right, guys, good morning. Welcome to Parkview East. My name is Doug, campus pastor here. It's a joy to be able to worship with you guys this morning. Um, before we dive into this morning's message, I want to just say a couple of words of thank you. Um, last week, you guys, uh, some of you stayed back and we were able to kind of clear the, the bank between um, East Campus and Broadway. There's just wildly overgrown. And so there was folks out there with saws and shovels and trucks hauling stuff away. And many of you were able to do that. Um, if you weren't, that's okay. It's Sunday and we got it done. So thank you for those of you who participated, especially in hauling that away throughout the week. That was a huge blessing. Um, also, uh, this past Wednesday night, we had the spot kickoff. And so the spot this year, we have really focused on junior high age kids. For those of you who don't know, this whole building here for 10 years um, was really just, it was the spot. This is the spot to be if you were a elementary, junior high, or high school age youth in the area. And the, really the design of this program was to reach youth in our community who may not otherwise be worshiping with their families on Sunday mornings. Maybe church wasn't a significant part of their upbringing, and so this was an opportunity to really proclaim the gospel and to share God's truth with um, students in our area. And over the last five years, we've seen really the mission, the focus of this place, really transition to Faith Academy, um, which has been the primary way by which we do exactly that. So been, it's been really successful, wildly effective in making disciples and proclaiming God's truth um, to those in this area. And so this past year, really what our heart is, is we added sixth grade. We've really tried to step back and think, okay, as a K through sixth grade, how do we help these kids transition to junior high, to high school, stay influenced and connected in their life? And so really the spot has kind of kicked off um, and with that kind of focus. And this past Wednesday, we had 70-plus kids, junior high-age students, that were in this running around playing laser tag in this gym right here, and it was a lot of fun. And many of you were there serving and helping, so I just want to thank you for that. Um, if that is not something you're familiar with, last, year, last week we did welcome cards, and some of you checked that you'd be interested in serving. The spot happens every Wednesday from 6.30 to 8.30, and it's a great way to, um, to, to serve this church and these people. So... Um, for those of you who may be new, and just to kind of catch you up to speed, what we've been doing, we're in the middle of a series this fall where we are walking through really what is the mission, the vision of this church. What is it that makes Parkview East unique, right? And we've talked about the mission is we want to we be able to pursue Jesus in everyday life together. That's really what God has called his church to. That's what we are embracing as a church. And we think about the, the way that by which we make disciples, we've used these three words to start with G. We gather together to worship. We grow in Christ-likeness, and then we go on mission. That's the way by which we make disciples. Next couple of weeks, last two weeks, and then for the next few weeks, we'll be talking specifically about the traits that those disciples should have evident in their life. Last two weeks, we spent on the first trait, the idea of enjoying God's presence. We looked at Psalm 1611, the idea that in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. There is no greater place to be than in God's presence. And the, the scandalous truth of the gospel is that the story of the Bible is all about how God, the creator of the universe, has made himself accessible to his people. And he has given us and invited us into his presence. And as we draw near to God... The awesome story of the gospel is that he draws near to us. 
Last week we talked about what does it mean then specifically to stay in his presence, to abide in Christ. And we looked at John 15 um, for some truth there. We're going to shift this week and next week into the next trait, which is simply live God's story. Live God's story. And over the course of the next two weeks, what we are going to be discussing together is the unique, the special relationship that God's people have with God's word. So if you are here this morning, you are a follower of Jesus, the whole focus of this week and next week is what role the relationship you should have with God's story, with God's book, namely the Bible, and what role it should play in your life. Live God's story. As followers of Jesus, we are called to live his story. And the language is intentional. Okay, first you may think, live his story. What are you talking about? Okay, being a people of God, it's not just about having his truth embedded in our minds, right? That we would know a lot about what God says, but that we would, that would go from our minds to our hearts and, the, and then it would walk itself out in our lives in obedience. We are called to live his story. So for that end, this morning, we're, we're going to do this week is going to kind of take a big picture, a broad view of what that means. And next week, we'll get a little more practical, a little more specific in what that looks like in your life. Okay, so this morning, you can think of it a little bit more like the motivation, the motivation for having God's word being a people of his book. And to do that, we're going to turn our attention to Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I would invite you to turn to Luke chapter 24. We're going to be reading this morning. It's kind of a, a larger chunk. And just as I read this, um, first of all, if you do not have a Bible, um, Mr. Craig Welch will be walking around and he's got Bibles. He can, you can just raise your hand up and he will give you a Bible. But I would, the words won't be on the screen, so I would really encourage you to be looking at God's Word as we read it. But I just remind you real quick here, Parkview East, the way we do children's ministry is it operates every other week. So this morning, kids are among us, kindergarten on up or first grade on up are with us in service, and that is good and that is right for kids to be in here and worship with us on Sunday morning, okay? And so as a result, sometimes kids may make noise, and our response will be, that's okay, all right? They might be a little distracting, I'll just try to get louder, Okay, so I can win over their noise, all right? But we want to be a place where people feel good and comfortable bringing kids into church and, uh, and things aren't perfect, right? So there, there may be some noises throughout service and that's okay. All right, so Luke chapter 24 is a larger chunk and I will read from verses 13 on through 35 and then I'll, I'll pray for our morning. Starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Remember, this story takes place immediately after the resurrection. So Jesus has been crucified. He is resurrected from the dead. And then here we go, Luke 24. Their eyes, they didn't recognize who he was. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. 
Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were going further. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him to strong, strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our, eye, our hearts burn within us while, we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we gather this morning, as we gather around your word, our prayer is simple. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit to this place this morning. And Lord, that he would show us in this text, he would show us your son, Father. And as a result, that you, the Father, would be glorified. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name. Amen. For many of us, stories of transformation are very appealing. Many of us like hearing stories of folks' lives, individuals' lives, who have been radically transformed, 180 degrees. When I think about Faith Academy, and, and, and oftentimes throughout the year, we'll have what's called open houses. Um, and just a shameless plug, I think there's something coming up on the 27th this week. <laughs> a breakfast, donuts, 8 o'clock, 27th, be here, okay? But one of the things we do with these open houses is we talk a great deal about our mission. What is the unique mission of our school? Who are the students, the folks that we are trying to reach? And what with them are we trying to do academically, uh, spiritually? What are we trying to see develop in their lives? And we, we put this before folks, and one of the, the questions that invariably comes up every single time, it's always there, is what people are really interested in is, what, is it working? Is it actually working? Is what you're doing here on paper and what you're talking about sounds fantastic, but is it actually happening? Is change actually happening, growth actually happening in the lives of the students and maybe even the families that attend here? Is it actually happening? And so in those open houses, that's one of the things we lead with, is we show results. We show that transformation, that growth actually takes place. And it's when folks see that, that their eyes begin wide, that their hearts begin to burn, and they get excited about the unique mission and purpose of Faith Academy, right? They're excited about the growth, about the transformation. And you could ask, and you could kind of tease out of that some different reasons why the growth happens, but there has to be a reason, right? Be it the small classroom sizes, be it the fantastic teaching staff, right? Be it the curriculum, right? Or the unique way that we have 
have designed the way that we teach and instruct students or the way that we influence not just the students but also the families and their homes, right? You could go on and on and on about the different reasons why the change takes place. Different reasons. But there will be reasons. There has to be a catalyst for the change. Right? We love stories of transformations, right? And there's always a reason for the change. There's a reason for it. What we see in our text this morning is a pretty significant transformation. We see particular disciples of Jesus, and the transformation that takes place within this text is that they go from being slow to believe to being set on fire. Just within the matter of these few verses, this brief encounter with Jesus, they go from being disciples, I believe it's one man, Cleopas, and possibly his wife, that go from being slow to believe. Jesus Christ himself calls them fools because they are slow to believe. And by the end of the passage, they are set on fire. Radical transformation. And this is a transformation that really characterizes not just these two particular disciples, but if you were to look at the early church and the disciples shortly after the crucifixion and the resurrection, you would see the exact same thing. Radical transformation. John 21 tells us that, that shortly after the resurrection, that Peter himself was fishing in his boat. Peter had, had given up hope. Jesus was murdered, he was crucified, and there just didn't seem to be any hope that there was anything else going to happen. So Peter goes back to his profession. He's in a boat catching fish. Other disciples are with him. They have given up the cause, abandoned hope, and they're in a boat catching fish. And then seven weeks later, seven weeks Peter stands before crowds in Jerusalem and proclaims, gives a completely clear and articulate expression of the gospel and proclaims to them this Jesus God raised up and of that we, all are, we are all witnesses. Boldness now is what characterized them. Where before it was unbelief, now it's boldness. Right? All of the disciples are proclaiming Jesus. They are telling of him and who he is. They have all transitioned from being slow to believe fools to being set on fire. That's a radical transformation. And the result is the world, we are told, is turned upside down. These are common, uneducated men who are boldly proclaiming and testifying to this Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did, causing a tremendous stir throughout, throughout the Middle East, throughout the Near East. What happened why? What is the catalyst for this transformation? What is the catalyst for this transformation? Well, I would suggest to you there are two main things that would bring about this transformation. One, the first of which, is what we will spend most of our time talking about this morning. It's simply this. When the people of God believe the word of God and receive the power of God, they are able to carry out the mission of God. When the people of God believe the word of God and receive the power of God, they're able to carry out the mission of God. If you think about the time, now check it out. Jesus could have very easily just been crucified, resurrected from the dead, and ascended directly to the right hand of the Father where he sits today. Poured out his spirit on his people. Gave him the power that they need. 
But that wasn't all that they needed. That wasn't all his disciples needed. His disciples needed to believe the word of God. So really the big aim in this passage this morning is that the essential, the, how essential it is for us as the people of God to believe the word of God. That's what we see in the text. We are called to fully embrace as followers of Jesus the word of God. Now really to walk through this, it's a story and so I'm just going to kind of tell the story. But what we see essentially is we first learn the root of the problem and then we learn the remedy to the problem and then we learn finally the result. So root, remedy, result. That was really hard for me to say because I so badly wanted to say Roots Rock Reggae. Any Bob Marley fans in the house know what I'm talking about? I've been trying not to say Roots Rock Reggae. But it's Roots Remedy Result. Those are the three things we're going to see this morning. First of all is the root of the problem. As we read Luke 24 and verse 13, it becomes very clear very quickly that the disciples are struggling with a tremendous problem. We see this in the text in several different places. We're told that as they are walking along the road that they are talking. And, and really the word here is they are debating. This is not a casual conversation. It is an intense conversation. If you see verse 14, we are told that they are discussing the things that had happened. Right? They are, they are talking about that which had just transpired. Specifically, Jesus being murdered. Right? That's the topic of their conversation. Trying to make sense of this new reality apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, can you imagine the emotions that these disciples should be feeling? These, these are individuals who did ministry, who, who lived and walked with Jesus when he was on the earth. And their description of him we see here in the, in the passage, he is a man who is a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. When they think of Jesus, that's how they characterize him. He was powerful in word. Jesus, with his words, he spoke tremendous truth. He spoke beautiful truth. And with those words, he confronted the political and religious forces of the day. He spoke with tremendous, tremendous ability. But he, didn't just, he wasn't just a powerful teacher, a powerful speaker. He did amazing works. He was man, a powerful and mighty in word and in deed. Miracle after miracle. Right? He extended compassion and mercy to those around him. Jesus was a man, John, when he first saw him coming on the scene, John describes him as a man full of grace and truth. Word and deed. All right, this is their characterization of Jesus. This is exactly how the prophet Moses was described to them as well, was described throughout, tech, throughout um, Scripture. A man who was mighty in his words and mighty in his deeds. In the mind of these disciples, they had hoped that like Moses, this prophet would offer deliverance from oppression, not only from Pharaoh, but this time from Caesar. All right? This Jesus they had hoped would be the Messiah. And it's so important to listen to the past tense usage there. They had hoped he would be the Messiah. This is who they had hoped would redeem Israel. And he chose them, these people, to be his disciples. They had fixed their hope on this man. Like Moses, he would overthrow the powers of the world, redeeming Israel and restoring them to a place of power and of prominence. Their understanding of Jesus was that he would come wielding a sword. But he came wielding a sword. It was just a little different than what they had imagined. This is what they had hoped for. Instead, their own leaders, their own people had handed their very hope over to Rome. And their persistence had extinguished its flame. They had hoped Jesus would redeem 
Israel. But now this Jesus, the one that they had laid all of their hopes on, was dead and he was gone. This is a big problem to be sure. So now these disciples are on the road to Emmaus and they find themselves confused. If you just look at the language here, they are overcome. They're standing still when Jesus approaches them, looking sad. These individuals, the unique challenge that they find themselves in is honestly not all that different than a lot of us find ourselves in. Simply trying to make sense out of life. What is the purpose? What is the meaning? All of their hopes had been placed on this man. And he was brutally murdered in their sight. I, we can understand why watching the acts of the crucifixion would have been traumatic to them. But they had placed all of their hopes on him. The long-awaited Messiah. Right? This was their, not just their friend. He was their deliverer. Their leader. And he had been brutalized before their eyes. And now they're in the unique position of making sense out of life. What are we to do? What purpose is there in life? Folks, the problem that the disciples on the road to Emmaus are feeling is exactly what our problem is as well. Oftentimes we find ourselves in a very similar position. Maybe chronologically just at a different point in history. Right? But we find ourselves in the exact same position. What meaning is there in life? Is there any purpose? Perhaps some of you can identify hopes completely unrealized. Maybe some of you have walked through grief and you know what it's like to, to feel and know pain on a deep, deep level. And apart from Jesus, what we find out this morning is it's really hard. In fact, it's impossible to make a lot of meaning in life. Make a lot of sense out of the mess that we call life. That every one of us find ourselves in. What is the root of their problem? This is what their problem is. Where is it coming from? The root of their grief and their confusion and their hopelessness. Essentially, Jesus puts his finger right on it. It's simply unbelief. It's unbelief. They did not believe. Their problem, all of their, their, their lack of direction in life, their, their sense of meaningless and hopelessness comes directly from their inability to believe God's word. Now just a few days before this story, what's radical, what's crazy about this is that just a few days before, the disciples were with Jesus on a road but it was to a different place. It was on the road to Jerusalem. Perhaps some of you remember last year when we walked through the book of Mark. We got to the section in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. And what Jesus did as they walked on this road, he had the, the very specific mission of preparing them for what lies ahead in Jerusalem. Specifically, preparing them for the cross. We see it in Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The Bible says he spoke plainly and clearly when he said those words. There was no confusing what he was saying. Then just another chapter on the same road, Mark 9, 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. So again, he's going to be killed, and three days later he will rise from the dead. 
just another chapter later, Mark 10, 33 and 34, and talking, the talking to the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. On the road to Jerusalem, Jesus was speaking a word into the disciples' life, telling them exactly how it was all going to go down. The Bible says he spoke plainly about it, that there was no way to confuse those words. The problem we find in Luke 24 is that those disciples did not believe God's word. As Jesus spoke to them what was going to happen, it's as if the words went in one ear and came out another ear. They didn't believe what he said. And so now they are in a place of complete hopelessness. Complete hopelessness. Folks, this is the third day. Every time he told them what was going to happen, he, be, he was sure to include that on the third day he would rise again from the dead. Every one of those prophecies included a prophecy of the resurrection. He told them what was going to happen. And when are they on the road to Emmaus? On the third day. Now, as they tell what has happened and why they're sad, they even say that the tomb is empty. There's been reports from the women that went and visited the tomb that it's empty, right? There's been reports that people have seen Jesus alive, yet their hope is still in the past tense. We had hoped he would redeem Israel. I mean, when you listen to it, when you listen to it, it almost sounds ridiculous. What do you mean you had hoped? The tomb is empty. Somebody saw the risen Savior, and you still had hoped? You're not currently hoping? The hope is gone. Why? What's the source of their problem? Their inability to believe God's word. You know, I would just step over here for a minute and say, I would suggest that if you were to look at the problems in your life, if we closely examine the problems and the struggles in our life, maybe even the sin that many of us deal with on a regular basis, I would bet every single one of those problems that would cause us to doubt God's goodness, right, that would not be able to handle some of the challenges that come into our life in a healthy and productive way. And I don't mean to minimize this because there are significant, like I said before, life can be a mess. And if we're all truly always under construction, every single one of us, that's not always easy. It's not always fun. And nowhere in the Bible does it say it's going to be. But if you were to look at those particular problems, think of things that happen over and over again that you struggle with. And if you were to circle those you should be able to draw, just like we did here, a thread down to the fact that the source, the root of that problem is an inability to believe God's word. Regardless of what it is, people. Regardless of what it is. Right? When we struggle with doubt, when we struggle with trying to make sense out of life, much of it comes from not believing God's word. It's exactly what the disciples are facing. So what is the remedy to this problem? It's a big problem, right? Peter's in a boat fishing. It's a wrap. It's over, right? Move on. 
what's the remedy to the problem? Well, Jesus, as he approaches them, we learn that what he does is he opens the scriptures. I love this story. I absolutely love this story. He points them. The remedy for this problem is he just points them to God's word. It's seeing the big picture throughout scripture. And again, it's reminding the disciples of God, the disciples of Jesus, that we are called to fully embrace God's word, especially, specifically about Jesus. So he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a part of this Bible study with Jesus? Could you imagine? He says that when he says he opens the scriptures, we should know that the scriptures specifically that he's opening is the Old Testament, right? He's not opening the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's not opening any of the, the, the letters written by Paul. He's opening the Old Testament. And what he's doing with the Old Testament is he's showing, it says, he's telling them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The things concerning Jesus in Genesis, in Exodus, in Leviticus, throughout all of the Old Testament. He is showing them through scriptures himself. This is an amazing thing. Right? When most of us want to do a Bible study on Jesus, I would say probably 99% of us are going to open the book to our New Testament. And we're going to read from the Gospels. We're going to read from the Epistles. We're going to read from the New Testament. Jesus does it from the Old Testament. And he's got a simple point. All of these promises, all of these prophecies, all of the oracles, all of the traditions of old, they point to me. They're telling you about me. I am the one who is to redeem Israel. I would love to just be a fly on a wall in this kind. I mean, this would be a phenomenal Bible study. You know, where did he start? Did he start probably in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? When God curses the serpent for bringing sin into the world. He curses the serpent saying that the offspring will come from man and this offspring will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Like even in that one verse, in that one verse what we see is that sin will be conquered and the, the servant who conquers it will suffer. His heel's going to get bit, right? Can you imagine the disciples seeing these prophecies come to life and seeing how Jesus is the one who fulfilled them? Did he go to Isaiah chapter 3 where we learn about the suffering servant who would be despised and rejected by men? Or maybe Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and 14 when he talks about the Son of Man coming in. Like where did Jesus go? He could have gone to any book in the Old Testament. Any book. Numbers. He could have gone to First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel. He could have gone to any book. And what he's showing them is that all of those promises find their yes in Jesus. That's the point of Scripture. Regardless of where you are reading, he takes them all the way from the beginning to the end of the Hebrew Bible and shows them the Christ, suffering and raised, crucified and exalted, buried and alive. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus do that? Why is it so imperative for them to see Jesus through the scriptures? I think it's, it teaches us a really important lesson. It teaches us a really important lesson. All of the confidence of heaven is in God's word. God 
has tremendous confidence in his word for us to learn his truth. He reveals himself through the scriptures. You know, when I was growing up, I went to a church from Dubuque, Iowa, and there was a a Bible college that's there. It's called Emmaus Bible College. And uh, a little boy, we would have breaking of bread every... Uh, so we had two services in the morning. We'd have a breaking of bread uh, hour. And uh, then we would have a little fellowship, you know, like break. And then we'd have our, the worship service after that. And a lot of times as a little boy, I can remember sitting there and parents would bring me stuff to kind of keep me occupied, much like many of the children here. And uh, I, would, I always would fixate on the sign that would be on the, in the back wall right behind the pulpit. And the sign was, it's called Emmaus Bible College, and the sign was just a, a picture of a globe. And then underneath it, it had the, uh, over top of it, it had Luke uh, chapter 24, verse uh, 27 written. And then underneath it, it said, the things concerning himself. And I always thought to myself, what an odd verse. Like, it's just a little boy looking at that scripture. Like, what in the things concerning himself? Like, there are some awesome verses about God's grace and his mercy and his love. Okay, why those words? The things concerning himself. Why those words? And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought about it. And it wasn't until, like, seriously, as a grown man that I picked up Luke 24 and began to read that my eyes landed on those verses, and I began to understand why a biblical institution would want that as its flagship verse. Because it is a remarkable, remarkable truth. And it is an incredibly important truth that we must hold dear and remember, that all of Scripture is about Jesus. It's all pointing to him. Now, I think what we often do, conveniently, is we remove Jesus, the things concerning Jesus, and we just conveniently slip our name into that place, right? The things concerning Nevin. The things concerning Doug. I think that's the temptation for many of us, is that we conveniently, we act as if this book doesn't center around Jesus and the wonderful promises of him, but instead we think it centers on us. And that's, you may not think that, like you may not actually articulate that with your mouth, right? But again, this DNA trait is called that we live God's story. But you may not say that, but if we were to just examine our life, many of us just live that way, right? Many of us are guilty of just living as if we are the center of God's story. Folks, there couldn't be anything further from the truth, right? Jesus is the one who lies at the center. And all of God's promises find their yes in him and not you, okay? And one of the reasons why we've embraced this as a unique trait from us is because throughout history, this is where churches slip, right? They, they take Jesus out, and, or maybe they make Jesus who they want him to be, culturally speaking, rather than who the word clearly says he is, right? And that's a temptation that as a people, we want to continue to fight and to avoid. The other reason why I think Jesus is very specific, doesn't just go directly to heaven. He could pour out the Holy Spirit easily from there. Right? But why he spends time with them is because the story of the gospel, the, the message of the gospel, is one that is communicated now by testimony. 
right? With the disciples, they were able to believe because they could see Jesus, right? Their eyes were open. They believed. They recognized him. Well, there would come a time, not far after, where the way it would spread would be by word, by testimony. Believing would come by hearing. And so, so Jesus opens their minds to the scriptures and shows them essentially how you tell other people about Jesus in the scriptures and the necessity for it. I think just practically speaking, many of us share our faith on a regular basis. I've heard lots of stories about many of you who go out and who tell people about Jesus, who have folks that you're, whether it's neighbors or colleagues, children, whatever. Let me just implore you this morning that that is encourage you. Yes, that is absolutely good and helpful and useful. But I would just challenge you to make sure as quickly as you can open up God's word with those individuals, you need to do so. Right? Because God has the process. He's the one who holds the power to illuminate himself and make himself known. Right? If you look at this, belief is really, really difficult apart from God's miraculous work in our hearts. Jesus was right in front of them. They did not recognize him. It was not even until he opened up the scriptures and it wasn't until they're sitting around the table when their eyes suddenly are open. Then they begin to identify the feelings they had in their heart. Right, that their hearts burned within them as he walked them through the scriptures. It, folks, belief is impossible apart from the miraculous hand of God. All right? Lastly, we'll just see the results. In verse 33, we're told they, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed. They, 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 as soon as their eyes are open, now remember these guys are... these disciples are on the road to Jerusalem, or sorry, on the road to Emmaus, right? They, they have this encounter with Jesus. They, they finally get to the town. They, they have a meal. They speak with Jesus. Their eyes are open. This is a seven-mile trek. This is late at night, and the disciples instantly get up from the table. Jesus, poof, disappears, and they go seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples what they had seen. Their motivation to share the wonderful news of the gospel, to tell others about Jesus, came because they understood the gospel. M many people do not tell his story. If you look and say, man, you know, those folks you were just talking about, those individuals who share Jesus with other people, that's something I struggle with. I'm not very good at that. This is really critical for us this morning. Many people do not share the gospel because they do not understand the gospel. They do not share this story because they don't understand the story. This story, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the greatest catalyst to any step in discipleship and evangelism. Those two things, first of all, shouldn't be separated. But as we think about discipleship and sharing our faith and growing in Christ, apart from understanding the gospel message of Jesus, none of us really stand a chance. That means if you want to be holy, you want to grow in holiness and in the likeness of Christ, what should you do? The Bible says you should study the gospel. You should know the gospel. You, you want to become more like him? You should study the gospel. You lack motivation in the Christian life, just in the disciplines, praying and reading the Bible and any of those things. Jesus would say this morning, study the gospel, right? If you want to grow in any of those areas, study the gospel. Anyone who truly has an understanding of what God has done for them in Christ will be motivated to evangelize. It's too great of a story not to tell, right? So I would just point you, as you think about different areas, maybe in your life where you're struggling, is to just do um, what Jesus did with these disciples on that day. 
Go back to scriptures and specifically search for Jesus. Right? There's no greater story. There's no greater news that any of us could have or tell is the story in the news of Jesus Christ. The fact that he, the very son of God, came to save sinners like you and me. It's the, beautiful, it's the most beautiful story that the world has ever known. And we are stewards of that story. God calls us to proclaim that message, right? Know the gospel. Just real quick, I'll say a few things. I mean, I think of when we think uniquely of Parkview East. If you were to, you know, some of you who, who are new here maybe this morning may not know this, but if you were to just trace back to some of the messages that we teach, you would know that this is very, like when I do my sermon preparation, what, the first steps I do is try to find Jesus in the text. If you would notice before, regardless of where we're teaching from, when we went through the book of Ruth just recently, it was the exact same thing. Where is Jesus at in this text. Before every sermon, when I stand up here and pray, that's exactly what I ask the Holy Spirit to come and do, is to show us the Son in this text, right? For us to carry out the life, the Christian life, we cannot do it if we do not believe in God's Word. It's absolutely, absolutely critical for us. Now, this morning, what we're going to do real quick, just to even practice this, um, one of the ways that we want to structure service here is that as you come and you hear or you sing songs that we're singing, the gospel songs, His Mercy is More is a great example of the gospel just being sung out in song, right? We open the Bible and we teach and we proclaim Jesus. And then also what we do is every other week we participate in the Lord's Supper, Supper. And we do this to celebrate ultimately who Jesus is and what he has done for us and to participate in the supper with him. And so this morning what we're going to do is we have three tables. I just found out this morning, and I apologize for my ignorance, that if you are gluten-free, there is a gluten-free table back there. Many of you already knew that, but that's, maybe that's good news for you this morning, if not. Um, real quick, I'm going to just read this passage and then... Um, Nevin's going to play a little bit of uh, some music. And while we do this, I want to remind you that this is a personal and intimate time between you and Jesus. And if you remember, we, one of the things we've been saying over and over during this series is as you draw close to him, God promises to draw close to you. So as we take the bread and as we dip it in the cup, um, this is a time that we're going to try to keep a little quiet. And what I want you to do is I want you to ask Jesus to just show himself to you. Show himself to you. If there's areas in your life where you are specifically not believing his word, ask that he would reveal those areas to him. If there's promises that you aren't holding on to that God has clearly spoken and written down and preserved throughout the ages, ask him to remind you of those and to give you the strength to cling to those. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father God, Lord, thank you, um, Lord, that you have uh, just given us um, all that we need, Lord, to fulfill the purposes that you have called us to. Lord, you've given us your word. You've given us your power, Lord. And I pray that just over the next couple of minutes, um, that your spirit would be present in this place. Lord, that he would reveal to us truth. He would speak to our hearts, Father. Lord, and I pray that he would show us real clearly who you are, who Jesus is, what he came to do, and our desperate need for him. Lord, I pray that our hearts would well up with just gratefulness and thankfulness as we think about 
um, the grace and the mercy that you extend to us, Father. Lord, if there's anybody here who's never tasted it, who doesn't know it, Father, Lord, I pray that even this morning they might receive that wonderful gift. We love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen.